I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Ranch Investor Podcast, part three with Rich Bradbury. Rich, tell me about the Oregon ranch market. It's interesting. The Oregon ranch market is, I'm fascinated by uh, all things ranching. So I get lost in the weeds a little bit, but um, there's probably not as much turnover in Oregon of ranches as there is here. I don't know for sure, but. Because you don't have a TV series called Yellowstone. Yeah, we probably, people aren't beating down our, their, our door to be in Oregon, but there are, there's beautiful places in Oregon. Um, I wish John Dutton was in Oregon and not Montana, just for the record. I imagine it's only a matter of time. <laughs> I mean, I just got a kick out of it. Even though River Runs Through It was based here in uh, Montana, a lot of the uh, filming of it was on the Metolius and the Deschutes. And just the association with it changed some of those markets, even though it was this uh, River Runs Through It was a very distinctly Montana tale. The footage and everything when people start finding out it was on the metolius and the deschutes it generated a lot of uh sales and properties around there i think i think that needs to be fact checked rich because some of it was filmed on the boulder and the blackfoot here okay (laughs) (laughs) but but i mean we can spread that misinformation i'd be happy to send more people to oregon because they they really liked uh a river runs through it horse whisperer Yellowstone, Legends of the Fall. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that uh, Oregon has the mystique that Montana does. I love it. Our market is a lot different. We do have a certain level of people that do look in Oregon. Um, and in Nevada and Oregon, you can... I did a cap rate on a ranch that is selling close to where I live. And... Uh, it came at eight percent. So wow. you can still find working ranches and not so beautiful places, and uh, that can still be a good investment. And it just have to change your perspective of what a ranch is. We have a culture of uh, Oregon, California. Have this shared culture where cattle winter in California and come to um, Oregon in the summertime, and so you might not necessarily need a 365 day of your ranch. You just might need that six months of pasture ranch. Um, we produce amazingly great hay. You get up in northeastern Oregon and you get around the Eagle Caps and Baker City, um, Pendleton, just some beautiful, um, Joseph, Oregon, just beautiful valleys with tree surrounded by trees and quakies and have elk and everything. So Oregon has a lot of the qual- similar qualities in Montana. It just doesn't have the mystique and notoriety. Well, when when uh, populist buyers call me with a sense of entitlement and tell me that it just don't pencil, Coulter, it, it just don't pencil, uh, rather than hanging up on them like I normally do, I'm going to start sending them your way with that eight cap. Yeah, I mean, it... 
it doesn't work on all of them, but there's still deals out there. And the so this is my journey, and uh, what I've really started to focus on in our agency is water. Water is the key to everything in Eastern Oregon. It's the key to everything in Montana. It's the key to everything in the West. And if you're purely looking, and I don't blame people, I'm not going to start blaming people for looking at ranch for aesthetic values. But a lot, there's a lot of really great deals that are way underpriced that have a lot more water than some of the most beautiful places that you're going to come across. A lot more value. And I think for a year, (laughs) for years, ranch sales has been sort of a cult of personality. Um, I mean, I went and visited with some people that sold ranchers, and this guy had sold in southeastern Oregon had sold thousands of ranches over his tenure and they're like uh, they just know you go to this guy when you want to do the deal and he was a clearinghouse huh he was amazing yeah and so but he's very much old school and very much uh, I mean the deals went down at a bar very popular bar out in the middle of the Great Basin and on a napkin yeah and he did it I mean he wasn't in the office very much and when I talked to him they're like oh those days are gone and I was like well are you sure you want those days to be gone it seems like you had a lot of business but uh, um, I do think that we are and this is why I was attracted to Ranch Investing podcast um, I originally started in commercial real estate in Reno at the time of Tesla and everything. And what I saw in Reno and through commercial real estate is a real um, fixation on the numbers. And I know, and you know, that not all these ranches are going to be good investments or long, but they can be, they can pay for themselves. Some of them can pay for themselves. They can be long, good long-term investments, but I think that buyers should understand the numbers. And I think so many people put these operations in, on MLS or whatever, land.com, and they just wait for a buyer. And then they work through it. But I just see that we could use a lot more commercial real estate approach to marketing some of these places and really understanding the metrics and operations of these ranches, especially the value of the water. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to find other values as I delve into it. Um, but I will call other brokers on ranches, and they won't even have the water rights. They'll go. They'll tell me to go get it. Oh yeah, I've been for sure. Yeah. That you run into that a lot with a MLS residential type agent who takes on a lo- listing a little, little bigger than she should have. Yeah, and I'm not disparaging these people, but I do think that there's a lot of room. And I think, like we we talked about in the last podcast, um, we're at the we're at the beginning of the largest wealth transfer in history. We have a whole new set of buyers, have a whole different level of sophistication, and have a bunch of a lot bigger background, a lot different backgrounds than we have in the ranch that traditionally have been in ranch. If ranchers bought ranches, it was seven-year-old guys. Those guys are the ones that are transferring their wealth over now. So 
some of the, those families are selling their ranches because the kids didn't come home. And some but those are not being filled. Those ranches that are transitioning are not being bought by traditional ranch type thinkers or people. But there is that passion there. And but there's also a more scrutinization on some of the details of it and a lot steeper education. Like my dad, 75, could work on, walk on a ranch, drive around it for a little bit, and he can figure out if it's going to work for him. The typical buyer I see, it takes a lot more due diligence and a lot more talking things through to get there and to see if it's a good fit for them. How many uh, ranches does your family have? Because you're in Oregon and Nevada? We're in Oregon, Nevada, and California. California. I thought you were in California. I'm sorry to hear you're in California, but go on. It works. It fits. <laughs> like I said, my dad can walk out a place and see if it's good a pencil. He just has a brain. He has that brain. And my sisters, my older sister, my middle sisters, very much I like. They wake up in the morning thinking about cows, and they go to sleep thinking about cows. And that's I'm very much the same way, but probably not to that extreme. I have other interests like real estate where I just think about ranches. And so, um, uh, yeah, so we don't own private property in Nevada or California, but we have leases. And uh, much of our leases we got on sort of a environmental component to the bids that we put in. Um, radio spectral analysis, monitoring, uh, satellite monitoring, um, actually on the ground with so we have a partner that goes out and he does the satellite monitoring and can track uh, changes over every year and as satellites get more sophisticated it's almost down to every 30 days so um, so both the Nevada ranch and the one in California we ultimately got the lease because we could bring a certain environmental perspective to it that the people that have that were leasing them were looking for and so that's a big change in a paradigm for a rancher and if you want to take that back to the sale to the buyers that we have now they come at looking at ranches i think it's very much and the quality the environmental component is high on their list and that you just brought up the differentiating factor for you winning bids on these leases is that you are taking conservation seriously and bringing in new technology. And these guys who call me and they say, Coulter, don't pencil. Uh, well, yeah, buddy, it's not going to pencil. Nothing will pencil uh, with your management and the way you run a ranch because you're not monetizing the recreation, the hunting. You're not buying subsidized pasture range insurance through the RMA which you Nevada guys love that program. <laughs> Boy, do we. <laughs> yes, you do. Oh, that is lucrative. Tax, tax money well spent. But uh, <clears throat> the guy who's bitching about it not penciling, he's also set stocking his pastures. He'll turn, turn out, turn, turn cows out May 1st, green grass. Well, why weren't they out there before May 1st? And why aren't you calving out on the range? And... Yeah, they're just, the guy who says it can't pencil, he is constitutionally flawed. There's a lot of ways to make money on a ranch. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of fun ways to make money on a ranch. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be enjoyable. And that's what, that's what gets the next generation to come back is when working relationships are 
uh, respectful and inclusive uh, when uh, new ideas are considered and tested, uh, maybe fully implemented. If it, you know, just try things, try it, fail fast, uh, test, yes. fail fast, repeat. And yeah, keep it fun. And that's what, that's how you get your kids back to the place. And even if they have a master's degree in engineering. Uh, I know guys that have master's degree, de degrees in engineering that are ranchers and very happy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, a lot of times it's not about the money. Absolutely not. But money does make it more enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> and when we're kicking around on places with clients, we do talk a lot about what, like, what type of revenue you can stack and what kind of programs that you can add. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, it's every day, all day, to keep some of these ranches going. But you can make improvements and everything. It's it's incredible the opportunities that are out there, and you can't just have the one trick pony operation anymore. It has to be. My mom's favorite saying is like. We produce a bunch of hay. Um, we can sell that hay, or we can make a lot more money feeding that hay to cattle every day. We get the yardage. We get the so um, if we can take in ex. We my, my family takes in a lot of outside extra cattle. Both my sisters and myself. Um, I probably won't do it as much this year. But yeah, um, I'm not afraid to run somebody else's cattle if it's going to produce revenue. I have an Airbnb stream. I work with land trust. Um, I have, I'm always trying to think of the um, type of revenue that I can stack on my operation. And as a real estate um, agent or broker, I have those same conversations with the people that are interested that are looking at the ranches that we're working on at the time. Um, a lot of people never have to put factor that in, but they are of the mentality. They, Obviously, if you were well-heeled enough to come in and look at ranches, then you have had some success in other parts of your life. I'm sure there's some trust fund people that are looking at them too, but most of the guys I see were esteemly successful in other walks of life, and they have some burning passion, and they want to get involved in ranching for some for many different a myriad of different reasons, and they're all good reasons. And uh, they have that work ethic to, and they have that brains, that mindset to see what the potential is. Some of them might want to get into it and just retire and take it easy, but I haven't come across many of those buyers. The most of the buyers I come across want to be actively involved and want to, they want to shape what the future is of that ranch, and in turn, they want to shape what the community is going to be. So, yeah, and you don't you don't have a net worth of eighty million because you're an idiot. Yeah, you sit around on your hands a lot. And even the person who inherited eighty million, they are more afraid of losing that eighty million than someone who has eighty thousand uh, dollars. There's just something about the more wealth you have, the more fear driven you are. Uh, Super wealthy individuals through COVID, they were the most scared of dying. They were they were masking up and social distancing like crazy because they I don't know if they believe they had more to lose than the proletariat or what. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this idea 
uh, you probably get it in Eastern Oregon too, but this idea sellers have and landowners have that some dummy from California is going to ride in on a white horse and pay double market value. That is a complete unfounded misconception because he doesn't have, he or she does not have that amount of money from making stupid decisions. And if they inherited that amount of money, they don't want to lose it. And they're going to scrutinize every part of your operation. And, uh, which I think is incredibly fair. And um, they're going to make a cost-benefit analysis based on what they believe is going to happen. And uh, we've sold some places that were pretty run down and got some pretty good money for them because the potential was there. And we convinced that buyer that the potential was there, so they took the risk on it. And it's, But it's uh, – and I think they're going to do great. But – and it's so people with substantial wealth have means and resources. Mm-hmm. So it is so easy for them to have their attorney or their assistant call three appraisers in your local area and say, I'll give you 800 bucks just for an opinion. Just give me a range, tighten it up within 10%. What is your opinion of this ranch? They get three of those. They've got the market value dialed in pretty dang close. So to think you're going to pull one over on some dummy from California, that's, sorry Californians, that is just a misconception we have here. It's a stereotype. Um, I apologize for the derogatory references. But no, that's, it's so easy in today's day and age to get the information. Yes. Even in non-disclosure states like Montana and Wyoming. Yes. It's a... Uh and i just i've it's not what i expected when i got into ranch real estate i think i expected the more the the sort of uh person that was just really passionate and wanted a ranch i didn't really and this this was the golden lining of it is the caliber of people that i meet through this job whether i sell them anything or not enriches my life so much and i those i have relationships with almost everybody and just because they're an interesting group of people and i'm not saying they're all got halos and wings and everything some of them are assholes but they're my type of assholes and so i i really uh like the i like this business and i like the trading of ranches and i find that it attracts super interesting people well, you you have a huge overlap of interests. Your yours and their Venn diagram has a pretty large area. Yeah. That commonality being ranches. I assume that uh, you then find yourself in this relationship after closing, probably doing a little bit of consulting. I do. My uh, it takes three hours to transfer all the numbers in my phone. It take I when I last time I transferred it, some poor girl at the Verizon store had to do it in 500 number batches. <laughs> Each 500 takes about 20 to 40 minutes. Anyways, I have dead people. I have probably three dead people in my phone. <laughs> but I have a deep Rolodex and I have good connections and I've maintained those connections. And so I usually can get the answer that that person needs pretty quickly, even before or after they buy the ranch. And so, and uh, that in turn, 
is that mutual beneficial relationship. So it then adds more work for me because eventually I have to return that favor. But um, it's a uh, it comes from being in the being in this industry for 40 years. And then I also have the oil field overlapping and um, just a I have over the years I've developed a really cool network of people that oddly enough they come in handy for things you've never when you knew them you never thought that they would so I guess in a way I consult but um yeah I, I feel like I'm more of a connector of people that of services and people that when you take on a ranch you need a certain amount of services and I try and make those connections and fit the two the the person that needs it and the person that's selling it as best as I can with their personality and that kind of stuff. But I do go and I kick a lot of dirt after the fact and talk about different things. And um, I think one of the things that really gets overlooked, and I've heard you guys talk about it on the podcast before, is once you do get a ranch, how you culturally transition into that region really has a lot to do with your success. And I tell buyers all the time, whether it's a house or a little acreage or whatever, your success in this community is directly dependent on what you put into it because you're, what you put into this community is exactly what you're going to get back. And so I truly believe that, and I try and set up buyers so that they can be most successful in that frame of thinking. Well, and you, you kind of have to uh, foster those relationships, you as the broker, because... If you bring in the asshole who locks gates and uh, he has he has put up his stonewall kingdom, uh, that's people are going to say that, that rich he he brought that guy in. Yeah. Rich is going to be bringing in more of these uh, megalomaniacs, and that damn rich he's the one to blame. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the one thing that I, that's another thing that I've learned is. Uh, I'm becoming more and more selective about the people that I work with. And I can, there's a lot of red flags and I am a very patient person, but eventually at some point there's just too many red flags and, you know, I'd really like to make that sale, but long-term in my life and my community, it's just not worth it. Yeah. But yeah. somebody else is just going to do it. So sometimes I feel really stupid, but at least I'm not that guy. Yeah. Well, you're, you're deeply rooted in those communities, so you can't just up and leave and uh, take your business on Zoom to another market. Right. And that's the thing that uh, when, I, when, we, when I left the oil field or start transitioning out of the oil field in 2018, that was, the qual that was what I was looking for, that quality of life, those relationships, those deep generational relationships. That's what I wanted that, that, that's what I was missing, and that's what brought, brought me home, especially when I had a child. And so um, that is very much on the forefront of my mind, and I think that those same things that I see in these communities is the same thing that people that are interested in these properties also see, or the people that are genuine about what they're trying to do. Well, I, you mentioned uh, commercial real estate is is a better background for what you're doing for valuing ranches than uh than a lot of other salesmen out there and in particular i would i would much rather deal with a ccim 
um, having someone with that knowledge of discounted cash flows, cap rates, uh, contribution value. So sophisticated multifamily type investors can walk, walk into a building and they can say, uh, these are eight foot doors that the market does not want eight foot doors right now. Yep. These are, these are 11 foot ceilings. People really like 14 foot ceilings. Now the millennial generation wants this type of kitchenette and that, that applies and converts very well to ranches yep. when you can do contribution value and you can really pick out, uh, each attribute of a ranch rather than, the agent who is an avid fly fisherman and archery hunter like why are you having your fishing guide transact a 10 million dollar deal yeah. <laughs> yeah. he, he was smoking weed on the yellowstone earlier that day he should not be handling your money <laughs> usually the first conversation is i give him a spreadsheet and so i developed a spreadsheet that takes some comparison ranches and uh i created an algorithm that breaks out the value of the water from the dry land so we can really get to the heart of what they what they're looking for and i can say they'll call me on this one place and i said this is a great place but these are the factors that you need to look at this place has no water it has a lot of beauty it has a lot of extended value but long term if you ever have to go sell this or your children ever ever have to go sell this the value's not gonna i mean you'd be better off to spend your money on this one that has the water it may not be as beautiful but it has the, it has this much more capacity for production and when you get right down to it as our as this industry evolves and we're throwing around like carbon credits and that kind of stuff you don't get carbon credits without water it's water and carbon are side but they're parallel to each other so there's all these other things if you're going to do conservation you have to have water and there's a lot of places that uh um they look really good but they long term they just don't if they don't have the water it, i think every year that we that, that ranching and uh our relationship with the government and the, these outside horses that we talked about those places that don't have water are going to have less and less value and the ones that do have water you can see it already um one of my favorite people on linkedin is uh christina rebellia and she started the western water market and she started she bootlegged that thing from scratch and she has a real marketplace now and just trade she doesn't trade land she trains the right to water in basins. You can't even, like, you can't buy water. She started in Moses Lake, Washington. And uh, that water in Moses Lake has to stay in that basin. But it can trade back and forth. You can lease it. You can outright sell those water rights. Um, and who would think that in little small areas like Moses Lake that there'd be that much of a demand for a marketplace to exchange, buy and exchange leases on water, but it's there and she's growing and you can see her advertisements for people looking for water or for people selling water. She just auctioned some a while ago. I think that was an incredibly successful auction for her. So, um, when you see 
these ranch ads, there's nearly not enough water uh, emphasis put on the value of the water, I think. Well, that's basin-specific, as you mentioned, because some, some are not transferable. And that's super nuanced. What she's doing is incredibly complicated, and I commend her for that. That's a, that's a very tough market to, to rein in, and she's creating the supply and demand side, two-sided marketplace. Very big challenge uh, needed. She, her product, her service is very, very much needed. And it's going to, in the long run, it is going, once you free market, <clears throat> my damn damn recorder's done. I think I think my battery's dead. But once you free market uh, anything, product, service, right, uh, it's going to provide liquidity. It's going to create a higher value, lower transaction costs. Um, I mean, that's part of the efficient market hypothesis. She is. She's doing it. She and it's a very big challenge. I I support her, and I hope to see that become more successful. Do you need to make a disclosure? Are you an investor in that? No, okay. no. You just support and believe in it. I find her to be a fascinating individual. That came up with an idea that I think the time has come, and the network she's creating is amazing. Because like, I've been introduced to water lawyers that I would have never known existed had she not started Western Water Market. Yeah, I'll have her on the podcast uh, here eventually, so we'll let her talk a little bit more about that. And the amazing thing is, she came from a she came from a place of like deep cultural interest in how water was being managed, and that's how she got there. She didn't come in as a like I have this really great idea, I'm going to get it going, and I'm going to scale it, I'm going to make a million dollars, I'm going to sell it to somebody. Her interests were much more personal, and I think that's probably why the passion's there to push it on and make it work. Well, water's just one aspect, one right in your bundle of rights. I want to go back to the comparison of CCIMs, commercial real estate, uh, to ranches. Uh, the problem we have with ranch real estate is you have a lot of uh, Ferrari salesmen out there, guys who are talented and very good at uh, working the sales, which is not a bad thing. I mean, um, we need to have transactors out there keeping liquidity in the market, keeping a functioning market alive. And this is a very tough asset class to to call a market because it's so nuanced and unique. It's not commoditized. But I, I didn't want to disparage pot smokers either because uh, when I when I made that comment about the fly guide, because I am deeply anti the war on drugs marijuana is definitively safer than alcohol my point was is that you should not get your gun manufacturer your outfitter your hunting guide your fly fishing buddy to uh, look at a ranch with you they don't know what they're dealing with the ferrari dealer out there working in a in a high brand He's a good salesman. He does not know the water, as you mentioned, Rich. He does not know the productivity of various soils. He doesn't know the grass species. Um, he doesn't know uh, the tree species. So it does take a specialist. And under, under it all, it's a ranch. It's for livestock production. Yep. So that's, you can buy it to hunt it and fish it, whatever. 
but your hunting and fishing is going to be only as good as your livestock operation. You're buying an incredibly complex ecological system that's been made, created over years. My cousin Ben, he's a voracious reader, and he says that the idea that we can manage wildlife is one of the white man's greatest or we can manage land and wildlife is one of the white man's greatest fallacies. So, and this goes back to one of my dad's favorite saying is, and I'm sorry if this sounds sexist, he's an older cowboy, but it's worth saying because it has so much value to it. Every horse, every woman, every dog, and every ranch that you're ever going to be associated with has a giant hole in it. And you need to be able to find out that you need to be able to figure out what that hole is, and you need to figure out if you can live with that hole. <laughs> and I really feel as a as the response as a real estate agent, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our clients, and our job is to have enough knowledge and to be able to see the numbers and find what those holes are and make them aware of it. And I don't think that gets done. And I think that's a very I think that's what. I took from commercial real estate is you need to find those holes and make your buyer, your, your buyers aware of what those holes are. and you have to make your sellers aware with them so that they don't have some expectation that they're not going to, that they have it made because I guarantee you there's no perfect ranch. Everyone has, everyone has some gaping hole in it that causes immense amount of stress for the owner and they're not going to want to tell you about it and they don't really, I don't know how disclosure works up here, but commercial properties in Oregon, you can, you're, you're expected to disclose it, but you don't necessarily have to. And sometimes the hole is so nuanced that you can just sort of not even worry about it. But there is a hole in every place. Right. It's it's largely Covey, mTOR, buyer beware. Yeah. And and it's so easy to to move past as a seller within your disclosures when you just say, well, I didn't know about it. And I, I signed the piece of paper that said I didn't know about it, so prove me otherwise. Yeah. Uh, you're right. And today, I just uh, before this recording, I was at a Montana broker meeting where we were talking about noxious weeds. And that is probably something that needs to be uh, further disclosure, um, especially because there are state and county implications and mandates around noxious weed control. So. We've got to do a better job of educating, disclosing, uh, buyer due diligence. So many nuanced factors, water rights, noxious easements, easements, government relationships, um, neighbor relationships. I mean, some guys are moving because they don't like their neighbor, but you don't have to disclose that. <laughs> um, but so it takes a lot of... Uh, it takes that commercial sort of mindset, and I think that that's the best way to create value for buyers. And if you're creating value for buyers, that you're making good, honest sales, you're making good, honest buys, that kind of stuff. So, well, I've heard more folky, worse things than than your dad's analogy of finding the hole that causes you pain. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about if I'm going to include that in this recording or edit it out. But, but uh, now let's get back to CCIMs and commercial. Um, we, take, we take this so seriously because we've been there. We know how blindsided and difficult it can be on a new operation when your yearlings get into lupine. 
and toxic species of plants. Um, we, your, your fly fishing guide and hunting buddy who has a license is not going to be able to help you with that. Yeah. And this, this goes back to we, we really want to protect the interests of the buyer, and we need to self-police in this business a lot better to do that, to create trust, to foster uh, integrity, to, to help these relationships. Um, we, we've got to hold each other to a higher standard. Yes, I agree completely. And it seems like it's a no-brainer, but it doesn't seem to be catching on. So uh, no, and, and you mentioned the shifting values. Why why people are buying ranches? Well, your primary reason can be that you like the riparian area. You like you like to regenerate a stream and restore it with beaver check dams and watch the willows come back and the water table rise and you might have these conservation goals but you're still going to have to have a successful plan around integrating livestock your ecology in general the whole thing is uh you're buying a whole that has many different pieces in it and just because you specifically like one little piece of it that piece if the rest of the whole is not managed is at jeopardy regardless of how well you manage. If you just focus on that one thing, you're probably going to lose it. So you have to be able to focus on the entirety of the ecosystem that is your ranch, I think. And so there's, there's another issue that, that uh, ecosystem managers, and yes, you're right, human hubris is just asinine to think that we can control nature, but we can, we can obviously influence it severely. I call, I call it nudging severely uh, in one way or the other, positively or negatively. Um, we, we are so arrogant to think that we are going to control the natural resources. <laughs> what I was getting at, though, is the fly fishing guide and the elk hunter bro outfitter who has a real estate license, they need to do a better job of making sure people are not vilifying livestock and cattle that they need to do a better job of incorporating uh, ruminants as a way to... So say they, they get their buddy in there who's going to buy an elk hunting ranch. Well, talk to him about his plan for rotational grazing, for rest resting part of the ranch, for improving uh, water so that cows don't have to travel so far so that they're not overgrazing one end of the ranch. Um, we have got to do a better job of having the conversation that livestock are the answer and not the problem. Yeah. And give them a reasonable ex So we do our finance, we, sort of how we do our financial planning is uh, we tie all the cost and the expenses of the ranch back to the cow. or And you can do it for any different thing, crop or whatever. But something has to burden the cost of that operation and carry the pack the burden of that. And it's just so easy to do it through a cow because it's a marketable animal. I mean, capital is derived from cow. So it's movable, it's sellable, easily liquidatable. Anyways, but so that's how we look at it, and that's how I look at it. So the cow packs a certain amount of expense that requires that ranch, and that's part of it. So whether it's the cow or a crop or something, you have to be able to figure out what's going to pack the burden on that operation. 
And I don't, I don't know what type of migratory bird species you're working with in Eastern Oregon, but there is a, there's a big push for, for um, songbirds, nesting ground birds, waterfowl, any type of your migratory species. There's a big push for more of that conservation, and those are fun, fun projects to implement on a ranch. It's, it's neat to improve the water, see the waterfowl come back, see more, more species nesting in the grass. Like that, those uh, non-financial returns are sometimes the most enjoyable. And we have got to uh, start talking about managing for what you want rather than what you don't want. So if you want to bring birds back, uh, that's the objective you have set out to do. That's a goal. Let's manage for that rather than, oh, I've got to, you know, if I'm going to bring these birds back, I've got to get rid of these these weeds in eastern Oregon cheatgrass. I've got to control their, the cheatgrass. So now their mind is like, all right, well, I'm going to buy some plateau at 120 bucks an acre, and I'm going to spray the shit out of the cheatgrass. Well, how about... How about doing it with livestock, timed grazing, hit it, hit it, hit it when it's headed out. Um, there's ways to do that when you have your goal and you're going to use livestock to accomplish that goal. Yep. Yep. That's funny you bring out birds. My favorite thing I've learned recently is a bird is the, uh, the indicator of a health of an ecosystem. Absolutely. So if you have a lot of birds, you're doing something right. So, and I like what you, the way you see it. And that's why I like these long, these type of podcasts because we're basically saying the same thing. We both organize our thoughts in a different way, but yeah, you manage for what you want, not what you don't want. And that's not in my vernacular, but that's exactly, but this is the interesting thing about being in ranch sales because it's such a much long-term conversation. I don't really feel like when I sell something, I can just walk away from it. I mean, it seems like I should be able to, but I feel obligated to that person because a lot of, oftentimes they're completely coming in, not knowing anybody they're taking, they're undertaking this huge, um, operation ecosystem, whatever you want to call it, but this huge endeavor and they're basically doing it. They're jumping in with no safety net. And I have to respect that. And I just feel bad not being there to say, here's this guy, he can help you. Or historically, this is what's happened. Or if you want to get this outcome, this is probably what you should do. Or you need to talk to this person. I hook people up with the biologists that I work with all the time. And it's just, I think that ranching and the mentality of ranching is such a generational thing it's knowledge is passed on generation it's got to be it's got to be hard to come into a ranch cold and not have that generational knowledge and so the big question is how are you going to replace that and sometimes the only person that the guy knows when he gets there is the guy that sold him the ranch until he can develop a network so and I think that a lot of people just make the sale and walk away. And I think that what I learned in commercial real estate is you got to preserve that relationship. Even though you made the sale, that relationship has to be preserved because you never know. Like you said, a guy that has $80 million 
that might not only be his only investment. So if you end that relationship at the sale, what other opportunities are you in? Well, it sounds like you you see it as a relationship that you're not a transactional broker. No, no. I I, uh, I think the success of the people that I sell the ranches to directly reflects how good a job I did. And it sounds like you have a sense of duty, maybe even an obligation to see them successful because you love the land base, you love the, the wildlife, the ecology, and you know that they are now the decision maker on 30,000 acres. What, what effect to the greater ecology and migratory paths, the water hydrology systems, what effect is that one person going to have with his 30,000 acres that he might be green to? Or she. She, <laughs> yep. Yep. Not, trying not to be a sexist white male here. No, it's hard. Um, but, yeah, it's just uh, lots to think about. And I'll just go back to it. I didn't get into ranch sales because I uh, saw a huge fortune, like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I got in because I love ranches and I love ranching. And um, probably the greatest opportunity is me for me in ranch sales is to have the opportunity to get under the hood of all these different places that I would never have that much. I mean, I saw them across the street or I saw them when I was driving down the road. But like you were talking about your experience with the, the workshop you've been at the few days, you know what the those ranchers are doing but until you got out there and kicked the dirt with them you really didn't understand so as a ranch junkie i really treasure the opportunity to see what's under the hood of these places and see what those people were doing because i i learned something in every transaction that i didn't know that benefits me long term and um what is it they say i'm not one for big for cliches but they say the, and you'll know this one. If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love. My wife is tired of hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't really feel like I work. I really feel like I'm providing a service to my community. And I mean, as a real estate broker, you really, well, commercial and ranches and everything. You're part of the economic development of wherever you're operating out of, for better or for worse. What your actions, your, what you take as responsibility, and what you do in the transactions that you do ultimately affects your community and everybody around you. And that, Absolutely. And I think that most people that trade ranches and everything they have that long-term generational mindset about their community and that's probably why we've been so it's been such a it's an industry that works pretty well but i think there's a lot of room for improvement well this has been a much more positive episode than the last one so as we wrap this one up rich um let's let's keep this positivity rolling let's go full tony robbins do you have a do you have a rant, a motivational speech that you can just get people jacked up listening to this and they're gonna go out and crush it? Can we end on 
end on some feel-good high note, like, where are you at with... Oh. With uh, just... Where are you at with spewing positivity? I thought I'd been doing a pretty good job. We are, but let's <laughs> let's wrap it up. Let's summarize it into I think uh, that there's, some key takeaways. and For people that are looking to get into agriculture, you are 100% right. You should. The agriculture, agriculture is the backbone of our society. If you want to buy land, buy land, because all wealth is created from land. If you have a problem with how the world is working, invest in land, because it'll make you a decision maker. It'll give you an opportunity to create wealth and to change the dialogue. Everything that we value comes from land. You cannot, even the ones and zeros. You cannot make the hardware that runs the ones and zeros in the computer without mining it, without harvesting it in some way. We cannot run these urban areas where Apple is, where Microsoft is at, without the food that comes from the hinterlands. And the hinterlands are in desperate need of good people to interject their new ideas and their innovative thinking into it. And to come in, not to change the culture, but to intertwine themselves and their values and their beliefs into the culture and change it over time for the best. And so if you have the means, if you have the passion, if you have the desire, come to where Colton and I are and get engaged. If that's your dream, if that's your passion, come and do it. Do caution to the wind because I guarantee you, and I learned this in my own life, is uh, it's worth it. It's so worth it. And if you're on the fence about it, get off the fence. Come and help change the world. Be the change you wish to see. Well, Rich Bradbury, that was a marathon of three episodes. Oh, I enjoyed it. Appreciate you flying out to Billings for this. Anyone who wants to reach out to Rich in Eastern Oregon, uh, just jump in your car and go talk to him. I'm there. I'm <laughs> He'll take you around and show you some places. We'll, Thanks. Have, we'll, we'll have some beer at the Nest or pizza at the Bowling Alley. It'll be fine. Message him on LinkedIn first uh, to set it up. Don't, don't just show up and knock on his door. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Rich. We really enjoyed this. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.